Hello, and welcome to Profiles, the program that introduces to WFIU listeners interesting people from Indiana, the United States, and the world. I'm Owen Johnson. Our guest on this occasion is Kurt Miller, Indiana University's new women's basketball coach. Coach, welcome to Profiles. Thank you for having me. Five years ago, an Erie, Pennsylvania reporter wrote that boys and girls grew up in Girard, Pennsylvania, wanting to hear the sound of a bouncing basketball. That sounds like Indiana, but it's where you grew up. Where did this basketball enthusiasm come from? It's funny uh, to be a Hoosier now and in Indiana because as I was growing up in a little tiny town called Girard, Pennsylvania, in the northwest tip of Pennsylvania, I affectionately referred to our hometown quite often as a Hoosier-type town. It was a town crazy for basketball and uh, a community that really supported the basketball teams as we grew up, had developed third and fourth and fifth and sixth grade leagues in the early 70s, and so uh, before its time in in terms of that. And uh, it was certainly a town that took great pride in its uh, basketball teams in high school and followed them not only at home but on the road. A common common sign in our hometown as we were driving out of town was last one out, turn out the lights on a Friday night as we were headed to a road basketball game. So... uh, Certainly was, you know, uh, privy to basketball at an early age and and uh, introduced to the game of basketball at an early age in a crazy town that ironically affectionately referred to decades ago as a Hoosier type town. What did you think the first time you saw the movie Hoosiers? Well, loved it and wondered if it was actually true or not, you know, and, but uh, uh, as a basketball junkie myself uh, could really relate and I used to, you know, and certainly was a big, uh, big advocate of the one-class system that Indiana high school basketball had for a long time because, um, you know, I'm just uh, I'm a big believer in those small schools getting a chance. You mentioned the mini-leagues, the third, fourth, fifth, and sixth grade. That's where your basketball career started, right? It did. Uh, and again, uh, before its time back in Gerard, Pennsylvania, very good coaches made up those leagues. And we as a community played competitively in third and fourth grades, and then we advanced into that fifth and sixth grade league. And so by the time you get around to middle school basketball in our community back in the 70s, the, our seventh and eighth grade teams were very, very successful and, and rarely beaten because most other communities that we played against didn't start playing organized competitive basketball until that seventh grade. And our community had been playing in leagues together for four years. And so it it was a great introduction at an early age, but not just an introduction. We received really good fundamentals and real good coaching from our community growing up. And uh, the varsity players in the community always took an active uh, role and were officials and were very, very visible in those leagues. And so you had those players that were eight, seven, six years older than you to really look up to. And one of those people you looked up to was your sister, Lori. Um, Did you get all of your basketball enthusiasm from her or was it from somewhere else as well? Well, certainly uh, she uh, was a great player, Uh, nine years older than me, left uh, after graduation from Pennsylvania, went out to the University of Colorado uh, to give you an idea of what kind of athlete she was. But uh, was a fantastic player. So I watched from her. She was a big, big role model of mine and was a tremendous athlete. And I was, I just loved basketball from an early age. And, and part of it was because of her. I'd keep her stats. Oh, and I'd keep her stats and, and be able to tell her how she did uh, did at the end of games when she got home. And, uh, and because of it, really followed the game of basketball from an early age. Now, in high school, you played point guard. What kind of memories do you have of that? What did you learn from that experience? Well, I think basketball obviously teaches you a lot of life lessons, how to deal with the highs and lows uh, when you win and lose and, and the highs and lows of athletics really teach you about life. But, you know, basketball uh, afforded me an opportunity to travel. It allowed me to meet uh, great uh, friends, not only in your own community, but on on uh, opposing teams and, and rivals, got to meet a lot of great people through basketball. So basketball taught me a lot, but uh, it taught me a lot about life, just not uh, just not what you learn on the court. But as a point guard, 
you know, you're the quarterback of the team and uh, you're the coach's extension. And so you're taught at an early age how to think like a coach when you're a point guard. And, and certainly um, what I didn't have with great height, uh, you know, or athleticism, um, you know, I made up for in basketball IQ and understanding the game and, and felt through my playing days that I was a good quarterback and an extension of the coach. Already when you were in high school, um, you became the coach of the Rice Avenue Middle School girls team. How did that come about? Well, one of the most impressionable times in my life and, and, and certainly why I'm probably still in this profession. But as I was uh, going into my senior year in high school, um, I was approached by the varsity boys coach, my high school coach. It uh, it had become apparent that not one coach or one teacher in the school district wanted to coach the 7th and 8th grade girls team. Well, as a community in a district, it was a rule that you had to be a teacher in order to coach in our school district. Well, no one wanted to coach. So they approached me and asked me if I would coach the 7th and 8th grade girls team during the fall if they gave me a faculty advisor to sit on the bench with me and to be there as an adult supervision during practices, but uh, honestly to run the whole program and, and coach the team. And they knew I had a great respect for the women's game. They knew I had an interest in coaching in, in, in my future. And so uh, I jumped at the chance to coach the 7th and 8th grade girls team when I was only four years older and starting my senior year in high school. And we had a great, we had a great run and we had a great season. And I, was, I still am in contact with some of those players to this day. And uh, I was hooked after that experience. I knew this is what I wanted to do. I wanted to coach. I wanted to ha have a positive impact and, and be a positive role model for young adult women. And uh, it was a great experience, uh, especially since I was only four years older than them. Well, what, what is it that attracted you to women's basketball as opposed to men's? I think that goes back to my sister. I, I had, I had uh, a lot of appreciation that the women's game – uh, was a good game and that there was good athletes involved, but the women wanted to get better. They wanted to be uh, coached. They, they, they wanted to learn the fundamentals of the game. They, they wanted to know the strategy of the game and what some guys can get away with with just pure athleticism. Uh, the women's game, you know, really takes a lot of discipline and execution. And I was really drawn to the execution part of the women's game. If you do not have a great game plan and you don't execute well, it can look ugly where sometimes things go wrong in the men's game and they can just go make a play. In the women's game, there's such uh, a premium on good execution, therefore good strategy and good coaching. And so uh, just never had any desire, uh, never had any desire to ever coach uh, men. Maybe it has to do with that 5-6 person yelling, yelling at a 7-2 guy, but uh, um, you know, I've always... Uh, uh, wanted to be in the women's game and have been fortunate to be in the women's game. You went to Baldwin-Wallace College, as it was then, um, now Baldwin-Wallace University. Uh, you hoped to play basketball, but that didn't turn out. He didn't get to uh, live my dream, and, and now to this day I get to relate the adversity that people go through at the collegiate level. I, I arrived at Baldwin-Wallace College believing that I was going to be a basketball player during the winter, and I would run outdoor track. Uh, in the spring and uh, and was recruited by the university in both sports. But as you will find out in Division III, uh, with no scholarships, athletic scholarships provided, you recruit mass numbers of people and who shows and who gets um, you know a, a certain financial aid package is who shows up and, and attends. Well, I happened to uh, attend Baldwin-Wallace and, and arrive as a freshman with them needing point guards, and there were seven other or six other freshman point guards that arrived thinking that they were the ones that were recruited the best. So I entered a class with seven point guards in the school competing for time, and uh, it didn't take long to realize that we had a great member of that freshman class that was clearly better than all of us and is now a Hall of Famer at, at, at Baldwin-Wallace College. But there was a, a tough competition for who else would be placed on the varsity team. And I, unfortunately, was not. I was placed on a Division Three JV basketball team. And after the career that I had growing up in Gerard, Pennsylvania, and probably a little young and cocky, 
uh, I didn't view myself as a JV Division three player. And so I walked away from the game that I loved for the first time uh, in, in, in my life. And uh, to this day, in my mid-40s, I regret quitting my freshman year and the basketball team. But uh, it's now taught me perseverance and to be able to relate to my players that things don't go perfectly their freshman year. And I can relate my story that in my 40s, I still regret quitting and trying to push them through uh, some of the low points uh, that all freshmen go through to not give up on this dream and that they'll regret it for a long, long time if they do because they have an unbelievable opportunity ahead of them. I found it fascinating that when you were no longer playing, you became sports editor of the Baldwin-Wallace paper, The Exponent, which another university in Indiana has a newspaper by that name, which we, I guess, won't mention. Did you learn something from that experience of being a member of the media? I did. You know, it, it was interesting because I wanted to stay involved with sports. And when I walked away from basketball, there was an emptiness in me. And so it filled that void uh, of getting involved with the campus paper and uh, it was the right place at the right time, and the sports editor resigned, and all of a sudden I found myself as the sports editor of the college paper as a freshman. So I, I got to uh, live through some of my friends and the college experience on, on a different side of sports, and I got to cover a lot of sports. And so it taught me a lot. I, well, I wasn't the best writer, uh, so I learned to become a better writer, and I learned to become a pretty good editor, and, and uh, I fought for – um, equal coverage for women's sports while I was the sports editor and, and really did a lot to grow, um, I think, um, the women's sports uh, in terms of coverage in the college paper and try to bring some attention to the, co- uh, the women's sports that were going on. But uh, I enjoyed my time and uh, it kept me involved certainly with sports since I, I made the decision to walk away from basketball. It's an interesting point there that you make trying to fight for equal coverage of women's sports. Um, does Division Three offer greater possibilities for equality between men's and women's sports? Well, the neat thing about Division Three sports is people are there for the love of the game. Uh, they're not there because they earned a athletic scholarship. So there's there's a true love of the game because they – uh, they're paying typically more money to be at that Division three school with no scholarships available. And uh, so there's a passion that you see and, and uh, an appreciation amongst your peers of people uh, involved in the game for the purest reason, just because they love it and they want to be a part of it. And uh, I loved my Division three experience, wouldn't trade it for the world, and Baldwin-Wallace College at the time, now university, um, it's still very, very close in my heart. After you completed your undergraduate study, you went to Kent State to start work on a master's degree, and you were a volunteer assistant coach for Bob Lindsay. Did you go there because you wanted to be a volunteer assistant coach, or was the degree the, the thing that took you there first? During my senior year at Baldwin-Wallace, I, I applied for every graduate assistant coaching position that was available and hardly heard back from anyone, let alone get turned down. And uh, and so I, I thought my dream of being a college women's basketball coach was over before it started. But uh, I was accepted into the sport management, sport administration master's program at Kent State and did earn a graduate assistant position teaching activity classes. And so I was brought on to teach racquetball, beginning racquetball and beginning <laughs> basketball classes. Uh, At that time, Kent State and head coach Bob Lindsay uh, for the women's basketball program didn't have a graduate assistant. So I asked if I could volunteer my time when I wasn't taking my own master's classes or wasn't teaching the activity classes if I could volunteer my time. And, And so I spent every free moment I had in the women's basketball offices. And, uh, before you know it, in November, after a few years, a few months, of uh, being there day and night, uh, there was a trust by their staff, and they started using me uh, like they would have used a GA. And I became an advanced scouter for them. Uh, I was an, a visible presence at practice, and uh, and they were giving me more and more responsibility as the year went on. And and to this day, that volunteer opportunity is what allows me to still be in the profession because it got my foot in the door. And at the end of the first year, the top assistant 
at Kent State landed the Cleveland State head job and uh, and asked me to come with her. And so just because of that volunteer experience and every free moment I had volunteering uh, allowed me to get, to, um, get the opportunity to join a staff full-time at a very young age, and I was very fortunate. In fact, I think I read you were the youngest um, assistant coach in the NCAA at that time. Interesting stat. Um, I was very young for my grade anyway, so I, I started college when I was 17, and so I started grad school when I was 21, and so I was actually hired at Cleveland State as the recruiting coordinator and full-time assistant at the age of 22, and so, um, you know, turned 23 quickly in that first season, but it was... Uh, researched and and uh, and certainly documented that I was the youngest top assistant or recruiting coordinator in the country at the Division I level. So again, right place at the right time. Like I tell all young people aspiring to get into the coaching profession, the hardest thing is to get your foot in the door. And once you get that foot in the door, you've got to work your tail off uh, and, and good things will happen. And uh, I happen to be in the right place at the right time and my volunteer experience led that uh, full-time position to be afforded me at a very young age. Did you ever have the thought that, whoa, your senior year, you send out these letters of application, you don't get anything, and suddenly within a little over a year, you're doing better than almost anybody else in the country? You know, I, I, I think I did a good job at that point of understanding that I was very lucky and that we've always said to this day there's probably some fifth and sixth grade coach out there that won three games this past year that's a better coach than I am. Just didn't have the opportunity for advancement or has happy with where they're at. And so I always looked that I was blessed and I was very fortunate to be at the right place at the right time and uh, and uh, knew that I was no different than that struggling senior at Baldwin Wallace applying for positions and couldn't even get a response back. But I happened to be afforded the opportunity, and I was certainly going to try to take advantage of it. After three years at Cleveland State, you went to Syracuse, uh, and you were an assistant, and Felicia Leggett-Jack was an assistant. Who was your predecessor here? Does it feel a little bit strange to it follow is, in her footsteps? It is strange. It is a little awkward, um, but uh, proud of the three years at Cleveland State that we, we build a program uh, into respectability and and was afforded the opportunity. Syracuse was looking for a young, energetic recruiting coordinator, and I had an interview with the head coach, and we hit it off instantly. and And I was uh, I was really excited about the opportunity to uh, uh, take on the challenge at Syracuse in the Big East. And uh, when I got there, the first person they put me in touch with was Felicia Leggett Jack, Felicia Leggett at that time, and uh, we were the two, you know, assistants that. Uh, uh, we're in charge of trying to find recruits and doing a lot of the work. And uh, we were terrific colleagues. We really uh, had a fantastic relationship. So when you fast forward and I'm taking over a program now that, that Felicia was running, uh, it's awkward at times for our friendship. But uh, our friendship will never – we'll always have a bond. And uh, we really enjoyed those four years together at Syracuse working together. And I have great deal of respect about what Felicia has accomplished in her career. I think she established uh, some great things here within the women's basketball program. It was terrific in the community. Uh, but now it's my era with this program. And uh, and uh, we have some goals and aspirations. And, a, and we're going to take it on a little bit different of a course. Unfortunately, she did land on her feet. Uh, she's now at the University of Buffalo. Now, after Syracuse, you went to Colorado State as associate head coach. What is an associate head coach? It's a fancy title for an assistant, um, but uh, uh, the associate head coach is a title rewarded uh, to people that are on the verge of becoming a head coach. It also gives the administration and school um, the, the confidence that if anything was to happen to the head coach or the head, head coach needed to be out recruiting or away from campus for any kind of extended time, that there was someone uh, in, in certainly the flow chart uh, of the program that was there to run the program. And, and so it, it was a little bit of a leap of faith to leave a great institution like Syracuse University and, uh, 
and the Big East Conference to go to Colorado State, but I had great respect for their head coach, and I felt I was one experience away from landing my own program and wanted one more uh, person to learn under and, and learn from. And so I took a leap of faith, and we went out to Colorado State, and it was the best thing uh, that that I the best decision I ever made in my in my professional career because walked into a situation where the program exploded onto the national scene, and to this day is the reason why I started to get looks at, at head coaching jobs because of our because of our three years at at, at Colorado State. I think the record was something like 81 and 20, if I remember correctly. Yeah, very blessed to walk in to a player by the name of Becky Hammond to this day is still in the WNBA and uh, has just finished her second Olympics with uh, the Russian Olympic team and and uh, just a terrific player. And, and we took that Colorado State program under Becky's kind of uh, on her back and shoulders we got us ranked as high as fourth in the country and went into the NCAA tournament one year as a number two seed. So it was a, it was a really fun three-year run at Colorado State and uh, taught me a lot, just what I needed and just what I was looking for. But certainly that success opened the doors for head coaching opportunities for me. Did your sister, having gone to Colorado, give you a bad time about being at Colorado State? Yeah, was uh, really pleased that I was now living in the state of Colorado at that time. Not pleased that uh, it was the rival Colorado State Rams and not uh, the Colorado Buffaloes. But uh, uh, it was for a family as close as ours. It was neat to be living relatively near my sister and being able to spend a lot more time with her than I was when I was coaching in the Midwest. We're talking to Coach Kurt Miller of the IE women's basketball team. We're going to pause now and listen to some music that he has chosen. That was music chosen by our guest on Profiles today, IU women's basketball coach Kurt Miller. You're listening to Profiles on WFIU. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. You came to... Bowling Green State University, Coach Miller, in the year 2001, after a couple of years of getting going, you had enormous success winning the conference or the tournament championship or both almost every year. What were the keys to your success there? You know, it was uh, uh, lightning in the bottle. We were very, very fortunate, but... uh, we inherited a program at Bowling Green had fallen on tough times, but it had fantastic tradition that we could lean on in the recruiting process. We knew that coaches had won there before, the program had been successful, and it had been wildly supported by the fan base in Bowling Green. We took our time in the rebuilding process and had a simple model that we were going to build the program in the locker room before we could build it on the court, meaning we were going to recruit great character kids that competed in the classroom and not only on the court and represented Bowling Green 24-7. And we did it slowly but surely. And you know, still some of our best coaching years, we believe, were those seasons that were not 500 seasons and, and record-wise didn't not look tremendously successful. But those two years really helped us build and, and we did it the right way and didn't rush. And so 
Uh, it was an absolutely amazing run. Uh, eight straight years that we uh, won the division title. Seven out of the eight years, we we won the regular season outright in the entire conference. And, and obviously, we had great success in the MAC tournament also to allow us to go on to uh, numerous NCAA tournaments. But uh, uh, we felt uh, we're very prideful in the fact that we built one of the best mid-major programs in the country over the last decade. But it was the key to our success was I had a consistent coaching staff. I did not have turnover in my assistant coaches. We had great uh, loyalty and uh, and work ethic by my assistants, and uh, we built it with great character kids that were hard worker, overachievers, what you would almost consider blue-collar kids and not prima donnas that felt entitled. And uh, it was uh, an amazing run, and uh, the fan base in Bowling Green is one of the best women's basketball fan bases in the country. So it was a really, really neat community, and uh, I'm very blessed to be now a part of their their uh, their tradition and, and uh, certainly their legacy in women's basketball. What is it? Where does the fan base come from in Bowling Green? Is it because – I don't mean to sound demeaning in the sense that there's not much else to do in Bowling Green? What? Well, it's one of those uh, neat college towns that uh, the college is kind of the centerpiece of the town, and they really support their their college athletics. But as most um, you know, cities and towns, uh, a little bit of fair weather, and but women's basketball had such a strong tradition that there was a fan base before, and when we started to win again, they came out of the woodwork. And uh, it's not often at a Division One program for women can outdraw the Division One men's crowds. And uh, four out of our last five years there, our women's crowds were outdrawing our men's crowds. And uh, we had something very, very special, and I felt like our program was touchable at, with the community, and uh, they felt a part of their success. And uh, it snowballed into something very special. The men's coach for part of your time there was Dan Dockage. Am I not right? Absolutely. came in with Coach Dockage as was on the men's side, and we became tremendously close during our 10 years together at Bowling Green. Do you expect to be talking to uh, Dan on sports radio on some kind of consistent basis now? You know, he uh, he has uh, put me on periodically. I've, uh, I've uh, asked to be a little bit greedier as we get our program up and running and, and have a little bit more success if I could be a, a consistent uh, you know, person on his show and uh, a guest on his show, and uh, he's assured me that uh, there's a place waiting for me to be a, a consistent guest on his uh, in his radio show. And he was a brilliant coach that I learned a lot from. Uh, but more importantly, I, I, he he is a very very uh, special person uh, that uh, uh, did not have any animosity to our success, and in fact really helped our success and uh, was a big advocate of our program and, and said a lot of good things while we were together at Bowling Green. And you don't always get that from men's basketball coaches. And uh, I owe a lot to Dan and uh, we're close to this day. There was an interesting clause when they extended your contract at Bowling Green um, that you would not be penalized if you went to, I don't know what the list was, five schools. And Indiana University was one of them. Why did you put IU on the list? You know, it was called a dream school clause, and my, and my AD, who consistently thought outside of the box um, and had Big Ten in his own background, uh, always said, we hope to never lose you and we'll do whatever we can to keep you, but you've done special things here. You've earned the right to have this dream school clause, and uh, I'd like to have that in your contract, and would you put down a few schools that uh, would be included in that in that dream school clause? and. I always looked at Indiana as very, very special back to the days of referring to my hometown as a Hoosier town because, you know, I viewed everybody in Indiana having a basketball hoop in their driveway, in their barn, somewhere on their property. And uh, I've always viewed Indiana as a little bit underachieving in women's basketball and thought that it was a gold mine, that it was a sleeping giant and with the right combination and and everything, uh, you know, all the stars align, that it could be a very, very special place. That's what I viewed from it on the outside. As I investigated it more and realized the academics and the facilities and the beautiful campus that it has, I believe now more than ever 
that it is a sleeping giant and has a chance to be a special place for women's basketball. But uh, very, very fortunate that it was uh, that uh, I had I had that in my dream school clause um, when my AD allowed me to do that. You mentioned perhaps IU is underachieved in women's basketball. Um, there are some, some stories um, that have been around, such as when Sharon Versip, who's now the coach at Purdue, uh, came here. She was here a year, and Purdue came to try to woo her away. And she wanted to stay at Indiana and build a program, but she didn't get the support from the athletic administration. Now, that wasn't Fred Glass, the current athletic director. Does any of that concern you? I don't know that story. Uh, I do know that we came here with our Bowling Green team and beat Sharon Versup when she was here at Indiana. <laughs> That's a, a, it was a nice win for us and uh, you know gives me confidence that with as we raise the level of talent that we can coach against Coach Versup at Purdue. But I've seen nothing but support um, you know, during my interview process and to my first 120 days on the job. Uh, there's a lot of resources here. Uh, that are in place to allow you to be successful. At the same time, I don't think anyone would be unrealistic that we don't have a 100,000-plus seat football stadium that some of our Big Ten competition fills every weekend. And so we don't have some of the resources that that others have, but I do not believe that uh, that we're missing anything that would be an excuse for us not to have success. Do you think it's possible to build a fan base for women's basketball at IU, such as the one that you had at Bowling Green? I do. I really do. I'm not going to sit here and insult anyone's intelligence and say that we can have 18,000 at every game like our men, but I believe there's a very strong, loyal fan base in place already. I think the uh, the community would understand that it, it would be a very, very affordable, f- family-friendly environment. Uh, and w- as the men's tickets are harder to harder to come by, I think Indiana natives are basketball savvy, and they would appreciate good basketball and great effort uh, by our players. And so I believe that uh, we can win this fan base over and grow this fan base uh, with quality fundamental basketball because the state is so educated, because Bloomington is so educated. But we've got to put a good product on the floor and we've got to begin to win. We understand that. The other thing that gives me encouragement is is our men's basketball program has the largest in the country student fan base for basketball uh, of college students. And so I believe that that is the missing piece also as we go down the line of trying to win over some of the fans that obviously love their basketball, love their men's Indiana basketball. We've got to win some of that student fan base over also. But uh, I really believe that this is a program that uh, on a wintry night can still put four to 7,000 people in, in Assembly Hall consistently. And uh, I don't think that is is far-fetched and uh, I think very attainable as we continue to build this program. There's some people in Bloomington who have said it's a women's basketball team. It should have a women's coach. Now, you've obviously spent a long time in women's basketball. You understand what that's about. What is your position on whether men or women should coach women's basketball? I'm an advocate you know, for women's basketball uh, from national boards uh, give, you know, dedicated my whole life to women's basketball. So I don't apologize for being in the game. I feel like I'm in the game for the right reason. When you ask my sister, who's her biggest role model in life, it was our father. Um, and so I believe there's a place for men in the women's game. Uh, the Men can be a role model for young adult women. With that said, I am also a champion for women coaches coaching women's athletes. And I've always said, if there's equal qualifications, there should not be any hesitation. We should hire the women coaches out there to coach women's sports. But when a uh, male coach has dedicated their life uh, to coaching women and are in the game for the right reason and have great qualifications and their qualifications exceed that of a candidate uh, for a position, then I also believe women deserve to have the best candidate hired. But uh, I am a big advocate for women's basketball and the growth of the game, and uh, I don't apologize for being in the game. But uh, there undoubtedly 
is that uh, you know talking conversation point out there that the women don't in turn get to coach a lot of men's sport teams or men's basketball. Completely understand that and agree with that. So if there's qualifications that are are similar or close, we should be hiring women coaches. And you probably know this, but when Fred Glass was asked this question, he said he wanted the best coach for for the women's basketball team, whether it was a man or a woman. What style of play did you use at Bowling Green? Will you do the same thing here? I have to tweak a little bit here early on until we can recruit to our system, but I do believe in our in, in our basketball system, and offensively that includes a lot of pick and rolls. And uh, uh, we get to go coast to coast and speak about our pick and roll system, and it, not a day goes by that I'm not being contacted by high school or other college coaches to talk about our system. And so I'm very proud of what we've created over the last 14 years and of a unique system that incorporates a ton of pick and rolls. Uh, our offensive system, as a control freak head coach like most of us are, it uh, gives me a little control on who is involved in the pick and roll and the spacing involved with the way we play. But it also is a style of play that gives a lot of freedom to the players to go make plays. So I think it's the best of both worlds. It gives me the control that I desire but at the same time still allows players to play free and, and, and make plays themselves. Defensively, we are a higher percentage man-to-man team than zone, but we're also very scout-heavy, and we're going we're gonna to have uh, a lot of uh, detailed scouting reports and scouting personnel tendencies uh, to make teams play to their weaknesses and not allow them to play to their strengths. So if that if that dictates us to play a little bit more zone defenses, then we're going to do that. But if you were to chart us and, and put a statistic on it, we are a higher percentage man-to-man defensive team. So I told them when the interview process, if they wanted uh, Bobby Knight's motion you know, to be here for the women's, they were interviewing the wrong guy because I'm coming with my pick and roll. And I used to marvel at Coach Dockage's ability to coach the motion. It's just not my... Uh, strength, and uh, we're going to run a very exciting, aggressive, attacking pick-and-roll system at the offensive end. The men's game these days is played a lot around the rim, plus, of course, the occasional three-point basket. How important do you think height is to the women's game as it's developing? We're getting larger and larger, uh, but uh, there's a lot of tall players out there that, uh, uh, you, you know, are projects, and are still projects when they graduate. I, I like basketball players. And uh, as you can imagine, I don't want to be told I can't do something because I'm 5'5 five, five or 5'6. Five, that puts a chip on my shoulder. And so it's amazing that there's recruiting analysts out there that consistently uh, talk about kids being an inch too sh- uh, short, uh, a step too slow. Um, and they don't fit the mode of what you you know a dictionary definition would say a player in this position should look like. We want basketball players. I want high basketball IQ kids. I, I want kids that are uh, overachievers. And uh, we have simple goals. We want to be the hardest working team in the Big Ten. I'm, I'm not going to put pressure on them that we're we're supposed to be a Big Ten championship team in this first year, but we have a goal to be the hardest working team in the Big Ten. And uh, those are the players that I'm attracted to. So I'm never going to be attracted to, you know, a height, a, a scale that measures them a certain height. I want basketball players. When you went to Bowling Green, I think you said you had a five-year plan that you hoped to be at the top. You got there a little bit sooner than that. Do you have any kind of plan like that at IU? Similar. I'm not sure I'm uh, really putting a number on it, um, but there's a plan that's in place to do it the right way and build that program with that championship locker room approach. And we got to fill that locker room up with really great character kids, kids that compete in the classroom, kids that represent IU 24-7, kids that want to be involved with community service. But we've got to raise the level of basketball talent that we have here. Um, and so it, it's going to take some time. We only inherited nine players. We did not inherit a freshman class when I got here. We scrambled to the finish line and brought two freshmen in and then two transfers that have to sit out the year. So we start this year with only 11 scholarship kids, and we've had serious injuries over the last three weeks. So um, it, it, there, there is going to be – it's going to be a marathon and not a sprint. Um, and so I don't know if it will be as fast – where we were in the MAC championship game 
in year three and won a regular season, a conference tournament in year four at Bowling Green. I'm not sure we're going to be able to do it in a conference like the Big Ten in four years, but we're certainly uh, not going to sleep much over the next three or four years trying to get this turned around as fast as we can, and and I believe it will be done. But uh, uh, I asked for six years uh, after five years was offered to me, and without a blink of the eye, they said, done, you have six years. And I honestly think that we need to get to our first extension and get this up to eight or nine years to really see the fruits of rebuilding this program. It's not going to happen overnight, but I'm telling you, if the community, the campus, and our fan base will be patient, this place has a chance to be special. You said that at Bowling Green, you recruited over overachievers. In some ways, at a mid-major conference, that's successful people who wanted to play in a BCS-type school and didn't get there. Do you have to change the recruiting in that sense at IU? I think similar, uh, still similar recruiting philosophy as we set out. Uh, Bowling Green, we tried to figure out some of the Big Ten uh, schools' recruits, and as they chased Dreamer A, and they were chasing their Dreamer, we established a great relationship and were fortunate to land a lot of B choices on their list. Well, when when Dreamer A finally made a decision and only one person, one school could get that great recruit, there was a lot of uh, coaches and programs now scrambling back to their backups. And Bowling Green had secured choice B. And now those programs who by a name on a sweatshirt might have been bigger than Bowling Green. Now we're going and signing choice C and D. Bowling Green really made rapid strides on the national scene. The same will hold true for us right now. We may not be able to get the player that uh, UConn and Tennessee and Stanford and Notre Dame want right now, but if we can figure out who player B on their list is and we can get B – and that great player decides on one school, there's a lot of schools right now that are better than us that are coming back and taking C and D on their list while we got B. And so our philosophy is still going to be that way. But without question, we have to win some recruiting battles that they hadn't won in the past. And it's going to start with Midwest, Indiana, uh, and Big Ten footprint kids. We We do not inherit a roster that has a lot of Midwest or Indiana natives on our roster, and we've got to change that. We've got to get in recruiting battles with Notre Dame and Purdue in this state and not only be a player but win some of those battles, and you'll see things turn around. Some people say at a in a league like the Big Ten, trying to recruit the best players means um, sometimes taking athletes who are not great students in a way that would not be true, say, at Bowling Green. Do you feel any kind of that pressure? Well, it's it's twofold. I'm very attracted to basketball IQ kids, so I'm attracted to kids that really compete for you in the classroom. I think there's a direct correlation of kids that excel in the classroom uh, will excel on the court, and uh, they can concentrate on getting better on the court if they take care of their business academically. I think if they're always stressed how they're doing academically, then they're never really focused as much on basketball. With that said, we have a great support uh, system here to occasionally, occasionally take a chance on an at-risk kid that isn't uh, a natural, uh, naturally gifted in the classroom, but they're willing to work hard. Uh, they're willing to go the extra mile in the classroom. Uh, they're willing to have a, a lot of tutors and, and peer leadership and, per, and meetings with professors and genuinely understand the value of an IU education and what it will mean for them in the long run. I do believe that you occasionally can take on at-risk kids and they they will thrive at IU because of the support network that we have in place for our student-athletes. Um, I'm not comfortable recruiting a team full of at-risk kids. Uh, The IU education is so valuable and is so respected nationally that I believe that we can attract some of the best student-athletes in the country. And uh, one of the big attractions for me to come here was I always always dreamed of 
being at a premier academic institution in the country. And my track record backs that up. If you asked some of the schools that courted me through our success at Bowling Green and where I accepted interviews at, it's the Cal Berkeleys, it's Northwestern, it's Michigan, it's Indiana. And I think that track record would, you know, you could argue that I'm attracted to very, very good academic institutions. And I, th- if I remember correctly, uh, at least one of your Bowling Greens was, teams was like in the top five academically in women's basketball? Four out of the last five, I think five out of the last seven years, um, our teams uh, at Bowling Green, GPA ranked in the top 25 in the country. And what that means to our listeners out there is that at the end of every season, um, all 340-plus Division One teams send their grades for all their players uh, to our, our coaches' association. The coaches' associations tabulate that all up, and they come back with their top 25 uh, ranking in terms of team GPA for the season. And uh, we were consistently one of those top 25 teams. Uh, the last three seasons at Bowling Green, our team uh, accumulative GPA – was uh, this past year 3.43, the year before that 3.50, and the year before that 3.49. So very, very successful teams in the classroom. And and that goes back to the recruiting philosophy that we were attracted to strong students. And, uh, you know, I've really enjoyed recruiting strong student athletes through the years. You've been quoted, let's see, um, or not quoted, but described as a, quote, foot-stomping, screeching coach. Is it actually true that you've hurt your back several times stomping your feet? I uh, do not have a booming voice, as probably our listeners can tell. And uh, my way of uh, uh, getting my players' attention uh, during games is to stomp my dress dress shoe heel uh, into the ground and uh, affectionately got referred to as the foot stomping coach, and in fact, Bowling Green had a foot stomping club named after me. But uh, uh, I am fiery on the sidelines. You know, I, I am very passionate about what I do, and uh, I think the players appreciate it that uh, that uh, I protect them out there and uh, and go to battle for them. But. Uh, I have calmed down since January and my a little uh, health scare on the sidelines, but uh, certainly uh, you would describe me as a, as a fiery coach, and, and I'm going to use that foot stomp to get people's attention. People will note that. A more serious question. Um, women's basketball players seem to be more susceptible to knee injuries. Um, it's happened recently to Kayla Holes, Jordy Holes's um, sister, who transferred to IU from Bowling Green. Is there anything that can be done to reduce the number of these injuries? Well, certainly we continue to have professionals train our student-athletes to improve their core strength uh, from your abs to your lower back, your hip flexors and your quads and hams, and all trying to have as, as sound of core strength as possibly. But it, it's, it's an injury that affects women at a higher rate than men, the the dreaded ACL injury, that knee injury. And uh, unfortunately, it's part of the women's game. And uh, the women are getting more and more athletic, but their their body uh, type and structure plays into it. Uh, there's lots and lots of studies uh, that, that everybody has a different opinion on why the ACL is such a common injury in women's athletics right now. But you have to give our strength and training uh, strength and training staffs um, strength and conditioning staffs a lot of credit you know they're really really trying to improve uh, you, you know uh, how we land um, and, and when the knee gets in an uncomfortable situation that that it can absorb uh, different type of landings and in awkward positions that your knee is put in throughout the game of basketball but unfortunately it's a big part of our game and and Kayla Hall's devastating re-injury of her knee just uh, these past few weeks. And, but uh, unfortunately, I don't think we have all the answers. And, uh, you know, there's no one reason why this is happening to women's athletes at a, an alarming rate at times. I think Sasha, Sasha Chaplin is another one who's had several injuries, although I don't think the knee has been part of it. She's had a lot of lower leg injuries, including knees. Um, she does has had some knee injuries in her past, and uh, 
then those two aren't alone. We have multiple kids on our program that have had knee injuries, and uh, it's hard to look at a college roster uh, across the country without uh, noting that a player or two or multiple players in their program have had knee injuries. What's your lifetime record against the Big Ten? Oh, that's a good question. You know, probably uh, probably not as uh, glowing as my overall record, but, uh, you know, certainly we've won a couple games against Indiana during my tenure. I know that. Did you ever play Ohio State? We did. We did, and uh, uh, we did not upset Ohio State, had some good games with them, but uh, I'll be looking forward to our first victory against the Buckeyes. Well, it's been good to talk to you and to have you as a guest on Profiles today. Our guest has been Kurt Miller, the IU women's basketball coach. Thank you for appearing with us. My pleasure. To our listeners, we're pleased you joined us. We close with more music chosen by Coach Miller. For WFIU, I'm Owen Johnson. With you, I ain't really sleep well. You ever feel like your train of thoughts been derailed? That's when you press on, lean in. Half the population just waiting to see me fail. Yeah, right, you better off trying to freeze hell. <laughs> Some of us do it for the females, and others do it for the reason. What I do it for the kids, life through the time we're in on. Every time you fall, it's only making your chin strong. And I'll be in your corner like Nick, baby, till the end. And when you hear the song from that big lady, until the referee rings the bell. Until both your eyes start to swell Until the crowd goes home What we gonna do now? The program you just heard was recorded in August of 2012. The studio engineer and technical producer was Michael Paskash. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios at Indiana University. Mia Partlow, producer. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. For WFIU, thanks for listening.